really a, a privilege to be able to uh, listen to uh, the people of God praise his name. It's a privilege to be able to um, not only uh, worship the Lord, but also to join in with uh, you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. We're in Jeremiah 46. We're in a new section now. Uh, we're leaving the narrative, the historical part, and we're, we're now going back to the, the judgments, no longer on uh, the nation of Judah, but now to the surrounding nations, and particularly Egypt, which we're going to see tonight, uh, which is where the last remaining Israelites are at this point. Those that aren't in Babylon haven't been taken away, exiled. Those that are uh, wandering and scared literally from the Babylonian army, they are now trying to seek refuge in uh, Egypt. It says in Jeremiah 46, the word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the nations, against Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh, Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, in which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Order the buckler and the shield and draw near to battle. Harness the horses and mount up your horsemen. Send forth your helmets, polish the spears, put on the armor. Why have I seen them dismayed and turned back? Their mighty ones are beaten down. They have speedily fled and did not look back. For fear was all around, says the Lord. Do not let the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They will stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. Who is coming up like a flood, whose waters move like the rivers? Egypt rises up like a flood, and its waters move like the rivers. And he says, I will go up and cover the earth. I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. Come up, O horses, and rage. O chariots, and let the mighty man come forth, the Ethiopians and the Libyans who handle the sh shield, the Lydians who handle and bend the bow. For this is the day of the Lord, God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour, it shall satiate and made drunk with their blood for the Lord, God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain you will use many medicines. You shall not be cured. The nations have heard of your shame and your cry has filled the land. For the mighty man has stumbled against the mighty. They both have fallen together. And so, Father, tonight as we approach this uh, section in the book of Jeremiah uh, that may feel foreign to us, it may feel archaic, it may feel old, Lord, help us to see that it truly is just as relevant today as when it was written some 2,700 years ago. Lord, just like us today, we may feel weary our bones may be tired, may have come from a long day of work, or stresses in life, or, or problems that we know that are going to be out there as, as soon as we leave this room. 
we know we're going to have to face them again. Lord, please strengthen, strengthen your people. Please encourage us tonight. Lord, I, I ask that you multiply the time of those that are here. That, that the sacrifices that they have made to be here tonight, that, that you would multiply their time. Lord, that you would refresh them, that you would revive them. Lord, I thank you for these, my friends and my family that are gathered uh, here tonight, those that are online, I ask that you bless them mightily. Lord, be with those that are serving even now behind the scenes that, that no one else will see or maybe even never know. Those that are serving our, our kids outside, Lord, I ask you bless them and strengthen them. Those are, that are serving in this, even in this room right now. Lord, I ask that you would help us to focus upon you. All the, all the things that may be vying for our attention even at this moment. That we would lay them at your feet. That we would ask you to help us through those times. To give us strength, nourishment tonight. And Lord, we love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week we ended with the last remnant of the Jewish nation. This once nation that literally um, amounted to millions and millions uh, of people, those that came out of Egypt are now going back to Egypt in the low hundreds. Uh, truly a remnant. Uh, their, their temple has been destroyed. The walls have been torn down. And against God's will, they have gone back to uh, the place of slavery. Their ancestors that also had to make those bricks. And now the last remnant of the people that are Jewish have taken Jeremiah against his will into Egypt. And now he's pronouncing judgment on Egypt and the surrounding nations. And if you look at the, you know, just the prophets in general, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or, or Ezekiel or any of the minor uh, prophets, you, you see a, a very large trend. And the prophetic word is mostly about judgment and wrath. And it's normally against the people of Israel. Or the people of Judah or the people of Jerusalem, those that are of Israelite blood. But there's always a section in every single one of the books uh, against the surrounding nations. It's minor, as in the book of Jeremiah, it's even less than 10%. But there's always a section that is directed toward the surrounding nations. This judgment against those that have had their eyes for ill against the Israelites. And so tonight we're going to see uh, Egypt and Moab and Ammon and Edom and the other surrounding nations, the Philistines, uh, that are going to have judgment pronounced against them. And I, I was looking at all this, you know, information, you know, and it can kind of uh, be literally overwhelming. And I was looking at how long have we been in the book of Jeremiah? It may seem like forever for you. It's been a long time. 
We actually started the first Wednesday in December of last year. And I was wondering, why is it taking us? There's only 52 chapters. That's shorter than Isaiah. That's shorter than Psalms. And yet we're going to surpass the time that we spent in Isaiah. And so I looked up some statistics just to show you guys. And if you were to count the words in each of the books of the Bible... Jeremiah actually has the most words of all the books in the entire Bible. And then if you include Lamentations, which was also written by Jeremiah, adding another 2,000 words to that, it surpasses by a large number even the second most uh, book there. Do, Do you guys see... Uh, the second most book? What, what's the second largest book there? Yeah. And then the, the third longest book I'm trying to, is what? Psalms. Which has 150 chapters, by the way. Has the longest chapter in the Bible. And you can go back and, and uh, listen to those lessons when we were there about two years ago. But the understanding is that even though this has less chapters than Isaiah, less chapters uh, than Psalms, it actually contains more information, more words than Isaiah and Psalms and Exodus and Genesis and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. All these much, uh, what we normally think of as much longer books. And so as we approach the the end of the book of Jeremiah, I hope you truly relish what we've been doing. Going through literally every single one of those 33,000 words. And reading them, not not just once, but, but going over them in your own private time. And then also multiple times from... Uh, the pulpit. Most of these chapters that you've probably never even read or heard taught of ever before. It's the privilege of going to a church that actually teaches line upon uh, line, upon line, verse upon verse, precept upon precept. The judgment now is against the nation of Egypt. The nation that the last remaining Israelites think is a refuge for them from the big, huge, bad Babylonian army. And rather than obeying God and staying in the land as, you know, um, nomads or keepers of the land, they have gone back to Egypt. And what was the reason why God didn't want them to go back to Egypt in the first place? What, what, what was their, you know, purpose a thousand years before? Yeah, they were slaves there. They're going back to the homeland that enslaved them. And as we read last week, that now has not, you know, enslaved them in terms of, you know, manual labor, but have enslaved them spiritually, worshiping the queen of heaven and worshiping the Egyptian pantheon. Literally burning incense and worshiping the gods in Egypt. 
It's interesting how verse 10 uh, puts it. It says, for this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance. That he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour. It will be satiated and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. What was Egypt trusting in? Who was Egypt trusting in? All these, you know, again, idols, these gods of the rivers, the, the gods of the alligators, the gods of the seasons, the gods of the harvest. But also, as we've read earlier in verse 9, their horses and chariots, which, by the way, once were innovations, but now, of course, have been copied and even surpassed by the Babylonian army, by the Assyrian army. By, by those that in the future will have made these relics now obsolete. The, the chariots are now, you know, easily taken over by the implements of war of the Babylonians. The, these chariots that were once used for skirmishes, these horses that were once used for great battles are no longer even relevant. In fact, the Ethiopians and Libyans, these were mercenaries that were hired by the Egyptians. People from North African region. They held the shield. And then the Lydians who handled and bended the bow. It's interesting how Isaiah 31 verse 1 puts it. And by the way, this was written at least 100 years before Jeremiah was even on the scene. Uh, Isaiah was during the time of, of the northern section of Israel, the ten tribes in the north. When the Assyrians were a world power. Warning the people of Israel in verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on Horses who trust in chariots because they are many. And in horsemen because they are very strong. The warning that had been given by Isaiah, Jeremiah repeating this warning as the people are trying to get refuge from Babylon in Egypt. Remembering what Isaiah had foretold. Don't go down there. Don't rely upon those horses. Or those chariots. Now of course. You know today. That may seem archaic to us. I don't rely upon a horse. Or a chariot. Psalms 20 verse 7. You've probably heard this one many many times. Some trust in, and some in, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. I want you to put whatever it is you're trusting in, in those two places. It might be a long list, I don't know. Maybe more than two. But, but we, we too also put things before God. We trust in... Whatever it is. Or we trust in. Thank you, Greg. 
He, he's just willing to pronounce it out loud. The rest of us like to hide it inside. Why? Because we do not want to admit that we have an addiction or a problem. None of us do. But just like the Israelites and the Egyptians of old, they trusted in the latest invention or, or the latest attraction or, or the latest innovation, whatever it may have been. There's nothing new under the sun. What are the things that we trust in? But the encouragement is we will remember the name of the Lord our God because who can surpass everything? It's Yahweh. It's the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God Almighty. Verses 11 and 12, it literally sums it up by saying, go up to Gilead and take a balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain, you will use your many medicines. You shall not be cured. Again, another innovation in Egypt. They were known for their medicine. Not, not only their, their chariots and their agriculture and their mathematics and, and their ability to be able to, you know, whether it's predict the seasons and all these other things that they were known for. They, they also had medical wonders too. Is there anything new under the sun? We've seen it over the last two years, unfortunately. What will happen? The nations have heard of your shame and your cry has filled the land for the mighty man has stumbled against the mighty. These are the two mightiest empires that are left standing in the world at this time, Babylon and Egypt, and they're going to collide. And they're both going to be weakened and fallen. Verse 13, it continues with this very long chapter about the Egyptians. And, and you have to kind of put yourself in Jeremiah's shoes in this instance. He's literally going to be living in these places. The Migdol and Noth and Tapanes. All, all these places that we've seen. And, and Jeff, can you put up that map? We've been looking at this for the last uh, two weeks now. Uh, but this map that literally shows the journey that Jeremiah has taken. First being captured by the Babylonians. Uh, brought part way to Babylon and then and now being taken to Egypt and the people that are left in the land are living in these three areas, these three city centers in Egypt. Noth, Migdal, and Tapanes. So these people, they understand what Jeremiah is saying. They're living there. Say, stand fast, prepare yourself for the sword devours all around you. Why are your valiant men swept away? They did not stand because the Lord drove them away. He made many fall. Yes, one fell upon another. And they said, arise, let us go back to our own people, to the land of our nativity, from the oppressing sword. They cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a noise. He has passed by the appointed time. He's old news. He's no longer relevant. 
the Pharaoh of Egypt, who was once literally one of the world powers, has now been brought low because of all the warfare that has been taking place. As I live, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, surely as Tabor is among the mountains and Carmel by the sea, so he shall come. O you daughter dwelling in Egypt, prepare yourself to go into captivity. For Noth shall be waste and desolate without inhabitants. All these cities that the Israelites are living in at this point. And you remember from last week, this was predicted by Jeremiah. He literally builds this um, elevated hut. Where, where the king of Babylon is going to stand as judgment over the people in Egypt. Listen to the descriptions here. I, I just want you to picture this. Verse 20, Egypt is a pretty heifer. But destruction comes. It comes from the north. Also her mercenaries, those were the ones that handled the shield and the bow and various other implements are in her midst like fat bulls, for they also are turned back. They have fled away together. Do you picture this? This beautiful female cow. She's been pampered her whole life. The, the heifer. And now what's going to happen to her? She's going to be slaughtered. Or the fat, big uh, bulls that, that have, you know, this massive presence, but are just, you know, meat. The Lydian, the Libyans, and those that were the mercenaries of Egypt. What are they going to do? It says it in there in the last phrase of verse 21. What are they all going to do? Flee away. They did not stand for the day of their calamity has come upon them in time of their judgment. Her noise shall go like a serpent for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes like those who chop wood. They shall cut down her forests, says the Lord. And though it cannot be searched because they are innumerable and more numerous than grasshoppers. The daughter of Egypt shall be ashamed. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north the babylonian kingdom in 582 bc will come into egypt and literally ransack the once great nation of egypt destroying as they go pillaging and burning four years by the way after israel fell four years after the city of jerusalem fell as the people of Israel are now seeking refuge in Egypt. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I will bring punishment on Ammon of No, and Pharaoh in Egypt, and with their gods and their kings, Pharaoh and those who trust in him, and I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in the hand of his servants. Afterward, it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. But do not fear, O my servant Jacob, and do not be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be at ease. 
and no one shall make him afraid. This is going to come to pass in about 70 years when the people of Israel will be allowed to come back to the land. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord, for I am with you. For I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you. But I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you. For I will not leave you wholly unpunished. Do you, do you see the difference? You see, the surrounding nations, the wrath of God is being poured out unhindered. But to the people of Israel, the children of God, they're being disciplined. By the way, tonight's communion. One of the things we're going to learn later at the end of the service is that we need to examine ourselves before we take communion. And just like the Israelites of old, yes, God is going to bring them out, but in such a way that they come back understanding what discipline means. Because they have, over time, many, many chances to repent. And what have they done instead? The nickname of the Israelites. Hard-hearted, stiff-necked, the word that's used more times in the book of Jeremiah than any other book in the whole Bible, backslidden. These people that have not repented of their sins, they have been punished by God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11.31, it says this, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Do you understand what it means to examine those little crevices in my own heart? Or those crevices that we, we like to hide from other people? The habits or the addictions that we have that we keep to ourselves... And what if someone were to find that out? Uh, another brother in Christ or another sister in Christ. What if they were to find that out? What would they think of you? Now, thank God we have forgiveness. We can go to him and confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins. But many times in a habit or an addiction, what do we do instead? We ask God to forgive us. And we go right back to it. We say, Lord, please forgive me. I'll never do it again. <clears throat> but we go back, back to it. Just like the Israelites, by the way. But if we were to examine ourselves, if we were to look at those places, literally, you know, really not just sugarcoat anything in our own lives, but really examine us. Judge ourselves, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11. And remove those things. Would we have to worry about someone else finding out? No, of course not. It's amazing. Because you cleaned it up. You got rid of it. Thank God he forgave me. He helped me. He will strengthen you to do it. Or maybe even ask someone to help you. We'll, we'll find that out later on. The next group of people that we're going to be uh, finding out about, and this is a lot shorter chapter, chapter 47, 
This is the Philistines who had been a thorn in the side of, you know, the people of Israel all the way back since their time when they very first came into the promised land. You remember the Philistines, right? They, they had their champions. Remember Goliath, right? He was from one of the five capitals of the Philistines. The Philistines were very strategic. They, they didn't have just one concentrated capital. They had five. So if one of them fell, then the other four would be able to continue on. Four, five different rulers, five different capitals. In fact, we're going to see some of those capitals as we uh, go through this section. There's always, I always try to remember it this way. There's two A's, uh, two G's, and an E, okay? Uh, you probably know some of these, Gaza. We know, we hear that all the time, right? Gaza. This was one of the capital cities of the Philistines. Where do we call the Gaza Strip today? Or the city of Gath, where Goliath came from. Goliath of Gath, the big huge guy that, you know, David threw a, you know, rock at, right? There was also Ashdod, Ashkelon, and then Ekron. And these five cities, these five capitals were strategic along the coastal part of the Israelite nation. Uh, they, they literally landed there, got a foothold in the land of Israel, and had been pestering the people of Israel for a millennia. God's going to pronounce judgment against them in, verse, in chapter 47, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines before Pharaoh attacked Gaza. Thus says the Lord, behold, waters rise out of the north and shall be an overflowing flood. They shall overflow the land and all that is in it. The city, those who dwell within, then the men shall cry. And all the inhabitants of the land shall wail at the noise of the stamping hooves of his strong horses, at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of his wheels. The fathers will not look back for their children lacking courage. These once powerful People, these ones giants in the land are going to run with their tails between their legs. Not, not even trying to save their own families. Running scared back to the ocean. Because of the day that comes to plunder all the Philistines. To cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper who remains. For the Lord shall plunder the Philistines. The remnant of the country of Kaftor. Baldness shall come upon Gaza. Ashkelon is cut off with the remnant of their valley. How long will you cut yourselves? This, of course, was part of the tradition of the Philistines. In fact, this had infiltrated the people of Israel during the time of Elijah. What, what did they do when they called upon their God? Remember the, the battle, right? The battle where Elijah all by himself poured water on the altar. And then the other, you know, people that were, you know, Israelites, but they were worshiping other gods. For hours and hours and hours are praying to their God, please send fire from heaven. As Elijah's, you know, sarcastically antagonizing them. But what was the, one of the things that they did? They cut themselves. 
as the Philistines did. That was part of their tradition in their worship of their God, a blood, self-mutilating blood sacrifice. Again, nothing new under the sun, by the way. Verse 6 and 7, O you sword of the Lord, how long until you are quiet, put yourselves up into your scabbard, rest and be still. How can it be quiet seeing the Lord has given it charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore? There he has appointed it. These five capital cities of the Philistines are going to be brought down. And by the way, you're not going to see them again in the history of Israel until... In modern day, when, you know, they also claim heritage to the land, too. And you have pockets, whether it's Palestinians or the Gaza Strip or the, the areas surrounding Jerusalem itself. And by, by the way, if you go to Israel today, or even in, you know, recent history, th this is still going on, unfortunately. Where you literally have three different sections, even in Jerusalem itself. Three different religions living in Jerusalem. In Bethlehem, where there is no Jews allowed. Because it is all Palestinians. Then we come to chapter 48. We've been talking about this nation several times over the last couple of weeks. We get to Moab. And we're going to find out about their brother slash cousin next week. But Moab was the larger of the two nations, Moab and Ammon. And of course, Genesis chapter 19 describes their, you know, origination. They are the the son and grandsons of Lot at the same exact time through his daughters. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, woe to Nebo, for it is plundered. Kerjiath Jam is shamed and taken. The high stronghold is shamed and dismayed. You may be wondering, I have no idea where that's at. Well, I got pictures. I had the privilege of going to Nebo, by the way. You guys remember Nebo, right? Nebo was the place where Moses died. Before he went into the promise, or before the people of Israel went into the promised land. This was the place where uh, Moses saw the promised land, but wasn't allowed to go into. It's actually a, a small hill, and you can see the... Uh, just the landscape here. If, if you look on the left, that's the Dead Sea. This is the northern part of the Dead Sea region. The Jordan River literally fills into this. It's a lot smaller today because of all the dams and stuff like that. But, but during the time of Moses, during the time of Jeremiah, this was a, a literally a raging river at times, depending upon the season. So much so when the people that were living during the time of Joshua tried to cross the river Jordan from this same area of Nebo, where, where Moab is at, they, they couldn't, not, not, you know, with any sort of human means. What did God have to do to the Jordan River? He had to 
part it, right? They had to put 12 stones right in the middle of it, by the way. And so this is literally looking out over the promised land. Just on the other side would be Israel. This side here is modern day Jordan. Where, where Nebo is at now. And overlooking that area where Moses himself had the privilege of seeing the promised land. But not going into it. As he hands the baton to Joshua. And Joshua leads the people into the promised land. The book of Joshua. There's also some other picture. Oh, that, that's the group picture. By the, by the way, Sam's in that picture. Sam, Sam, he's right back there. He's in that picture right there. Uh, we had the privilege of, of going there. It was freezing cold that day. This was February, two weeks before COVID. We just barely made it out. And that's, that's my son, Zachary, right there. He, he, this is, that's a 10 foot tall circular stone on top of Nebo there. And of course that was his signature move where we would go. He'd, he'd do the planking stuff, you know, it's good to be young. <laughs> Thomas was there too. John, John, uh, in the back there who normally runs the sound with Jeff, his son was also uh, part of uh, that group. But Nebo was a famous landmark on purpose. This is where Moses died. Where if you read the book of Jude, you know, Michael literally fought over the body of Moses. On, on, this, on this hill, in this place, Mount Nebo, not, not in Israel, but in Moab, or modern-day Jordan, today. The descendants of Lot. This is what we're reading about. This is relevant. This is important. This isn't just some ancient history from 2,700 years ago. This is relevant today. What, what does it say? No more praise of Moab in Heshbon. They have devised evil against her. Come, let us cut her off as a nation. You also shall be cut down, O madman. The sword shall pursue you. A voice of crying shall be from, and I cannot pronounce that word, plundering and great destruction. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have caused a cry to be heard. For an ancient Luhith, they ascend with continual weeping. For in the descent of Horonam, the enemies have heard a cry of destruction. Look at the way that it describes it. Flee, save your lives, and be like the juniper in the wilderness. For because you have trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken. And Chemosh shall go forth into captivity, his priests and his princes together. Do you see the descriptions there? What are they holding on to? Their horses and their chariots. The things that they treasure in this world. Not, not just the regular people, not just the common people, but even the religious leaders and uh, the elite in the political environment. 
as well. The princes and the priests. What happened to them? The plunderer shall come against every city. No one shall escape. The valley also shall perish. And the plain shall be destroyed as the Lord has spoken. Give wings to Moab that she may flee and get away. For her cities shall be desolate without any to dwell in them. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully. And cursed is he who keeps back his sword from blood. By the way, if you go to Jordan today. Five times a day, you'll, you'll hear it over loudspeakers. It wakes you up at 5 a.m. in the morning. The Allahs, the crying out of the Muslim faithful. As they literally with... Um, uh, from from the very depths of their you know lungs, from the very depths of their being, as they cry out to a God who has no ears. A God who is weak. A God who is not real. A God as we see here that will not stand up for them. A God, as it says in verse 11, Moaz has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs and he has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remained in him and his scent has not changed. They have become apathetic. They have been lethargic. They have been resting on their laurels. They've been relying upon the things that they've been doing over and over and over and over again. And what's going to happen to them? They're going to run away scared. Verse 12, therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I shall send him wine workers who will tip him over and empty his vessels and break the bottles. Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. How can you say we are mighty and strong for the war? Moab is plundered and gone up from her cities. Her chosen young men have gone down to the slaughter, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. But by the way, this is not Israelites. This is people that when Israel was fleeing from Egypt, refused to allow them to pass through their territory. That this was the nephew of Abraham, Lot, his sons and grandsons. The relatives of Israel, by the way, had refused any hospitality to the nation of Israel. What is God going to do to them? The same is going to happen to them. Will any nation allow them refuge? No. 
calamity of Moab is near at hand, and his affliction comes quickly. Bemoan him, all you who are around him, and all you who know his name. Say, how the strong staff is broken, the beautiful rod, O daughter inhabiting Dibon. Uh, come down from your glory and sit in thirst, for the plunderer of Moab has come against you. He has destroyed your strongholds, O inhabitant of Aor, standing by the way and watch and ask him who flees and her who escapes and say, what has happened? Moab is shamed for he has broken down well and cry. Tell it in Arnam that Moab is plundered. What's going to happen to the land? The, by the way, this is a, a fertile land. As Babylon is going from nation to nation, going from Israel after destroying the temple and the city walls of Jerusalem, now having its eyes set on Moab, Ammon, Edom, and Egypt. But does God still warn them? Yes, he does. Does God still tell them? Yes, he does. Do they still have the chance to repent? Yes, they do. For God so loved the... Make him drunk because he exalted him against the Lord. Moab shall wallow in his vomit and he shall also be in derision. For he was not Israel a derision to you. Was he found among thieves? For whenever you speak of him, you shake your head in scorn. By the way, this is a reference to what happened when the nation of Israel was trying to seek hospitality within the uh, wilderness area. This is before they had crossed over the Jordan River. Remember, Moab had seen this great nation just wandering around for literally decades. And they wanted to do something about them. So the king of Moab, he hires this guy by the name of Balaam. You guys remember Balaam, right? You, you can read the story in Numbers chapter 22 to 25 there. Uh, but just to sum it up, uh, King Balak, he actually hires Balaam, and it was Balaam's donkey who, you know, pushed him against the side and tried to prevent him from cursing uh, the people of Israel. And God told him, you will not curse the people of Israel. And three times he tried to curse the people of Israel, but God prevented him from doing that. From blatantly cursing the people of Israel. But Balaam did something very crafty. He didn't pronounce judgment or curse the people of Israel. He instead got them to curse themselves. Balak, king of Moab, all you got to do is send your pretty women in. All you got to do. I can't curse them. But God will curse them if they worship other gods. And so that's what Moab did. They sent their pretty women that worshipped other gods, the secret weapon, if you will. And God judged the people of Israel. Chapter 25 of the book of Numbers. Severely, by the way. It's an amazing story. You know, you can read it this week. Verse 28, you dwell in Moab, leave the cities and dwell in the rock and be like the dove which makes her nest in the sides of the cave's mouth. 
We have heard the pride of Moab. He is exceedingly proud of his loftiness and arrogance and pride and of the haughtiness of his heart. I know his wrath, says the Lord, but it is not right. He lies, or his lies have made nothing right. Therefore, I will wail for Moab and I will cry out for all Moab. I will mourn for the men of Kerhariz, these relatives of Abraham himself. By, by the way, what was the relationship like between Lot and Abraham? Lot, who was the father of Moab. The Lot, who was the father of Ammon. What, what did Abraham do for his nephew? When he could have had the right to choose, what did he do instead? He allows the nephew to choose first. Isn't that amazing? What did Lot choose? You guys remember the story. <clears throat> Sodom and Gomorrah, right? By the way, that's why he had to, you know, or his daughters had to, you know, quote unquote, sleep with their dad. Because his wife got turned into a pillar of salt. You understand the consequences of these choices that at the time looked prosperous. They, they looked advantageous even. I'll just choose the, the good things. The easy place, right? The nice cities. Before God rains fire upon them, of course. We'll pick it up here. Next week, we have the privilege of taking communion tonight. It's one of those uh, privileges that we have at the first uh, Sundays and Wednesdays of uh, the month. We invite you just come forward and, and grab uh, one of the elements. If you haven't already. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, we read these instructions. And by the way, you know, just like uh, the book of Matthew, just like the book of Luke, where we see the actual story, Paul is actually instructing the people of Corinth, the church of Corinth, how to take communion. What, what, what is involved in communion? And last week and this week, we're going to uh, kind of uh, go over this in a little bit of a detail. But Paul says this, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Were the Corinthian people, the church in Corinth, taking the communion correctly? No. In fact, they were abusing the table of the Lord. They were taking advantage. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. What did they want when they were taking communion? To be recognized. I got up there first. I got the most prominent seat. I get the privilege of, you know, having the biggest piece. We'll see that too. 
or the biggest cup or the biggest amount. It's great because every single one of these are exactly the same. But, but Paul continues on in verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, by the way, it was always congregational. It was always uh, communion as a group. Thank God we have the privilege of having, you know, live streaming. And, and those of you that are at home, we can always take the Lord's Supper. But there's something about communion with the body of Christ. As in that upper room with those 12 men gathered around that table, they shared a meal together. But what were the Corinthians doing? For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you the second time he says this. And then what is he saying? And this goes back to the verse that we talked about earlier today. Why is God pronouncing judgment on the surrounding nations? Why is he giving them a chance to repent? As he does with us. He gives us the chance to examine our lives. Because this is truly a privilege. We should never take it lightly. This is the time that we have with God to remember what he has done for us and his second coming, coming back again. Because we take this as long as he has not returned. And it's always in remembrance of what he's done for us. In fact, in verse 27, they're skipping ahead. It says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. There is a greater judgment on the house of God. Do not take this lightly. And so tonight, we'll, we'll, I'll give you a little bit of time to do what it says in verses 28 to 31. But let a man examine himself. And so... Let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. Not discerning the Lord's body. This is a sacrament. Don't believe that it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. But it is a sacrament. And it is what we do to remember what Jesus Christ did for us. So tonight, please, self-examine yourselves. Check out those little nooks and crannies in your heart. Is there someone you need to go to? If there's a sin that you need to confess. Silence is hard. Self-examination is one of those things that we have to discipline ourselves for.
Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit that moves freely in our midst. We ask that you help us to remember what you did for us. We would take this time to really remember what you have done for us. The instructions then continue in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. By the way, Paul wasn't even in that upper room. But he received these instructions directly from God himself. That the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we do this corporately. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, really, really think about this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The New Testament, the new witness. And what was it signed in? How was it initiated and fulfilled? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. So as we take it together, we read this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What happens every single time we take communion? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. When we get to sit at that beautiful table, when we get to celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb, when we get to see Jesus face to face. And as is our tradition on Wednesday nights, the first Wednesday of the month, this goes back to actually the song, literally is word for word, it comes out of the book of Numbers, by the way. Numbers chapter 6. And it's a repeated chorus, very, very short, not very long. But, but I want to share it with you. It says, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. Lord, make its face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Do you need a blessing tonight? Do you need to be uplifted tonight? Do you need to be encouraged tonight? Sing with me this song. And by, by the way, we're going to split the, the church in half. We'll, we'll do it in the, the second time we sing it. But uh, this, this side will sing it first and then this side will sing it second. And, you know, for Nelson, that's Nelson's side is first, okay? Uh, by the way, it's great to see Nelson here tonight. It goes like this. The Lord bless thee and give thee. The Lord 
face to shine upon thee. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. We'll split it up into parts. The Lord bless thee, the Lord bless thee, and keep thee, and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee. The Lord bless thee, the Lord bless thee, and keep thee, and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee, and be gracious unto thee. And be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up, the Lord lift up his countenance, his countenance upon thee. And give thee peace. And be gracious unto thee. And be gracious unto thee the lord bless thee the lord bless thee and keep thee and keep thee the lord make his face to shine upon thee and lord i ask that you would help us lord to know that you truly do bless us it is you that is the strength of our life. It is the you that we come to in our times of need. It is you that lifts us up on, on wings like eagles. It is you that surpasses any of the technological wonders that we may rely upon today. It is you that we put our hope and our strength in. So Lord, I ask that you bless these, my friends and my family tonight. That as they face the world, as they face the problems, this, this room was just a, a short refuge from that, that they would, they would truly understand that you are on their side. And so Lord, I ask you bless them tonight. Use us for your glory. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.